This is just drama again. I know. Drama is adrenaline, addictive, and in many ways the opposite of adult behaviour. Uh, and all the things you've been telling me about the Alphayed men, that, well, that Dodie's sweet enough. He really is. He's very sweet. But a little lost, too. And caught up in an unhealthy dynamic with his father. Definitely. Definitely. Are these really people you should be close to? People you should even know? The risk is one normalises the abnormal and becomes accustomed to living in the madness. That's when things really go wrong. I know. Welcome to The Crown, the official podcast. I'm Edith Bowman, and this is the show that follows the sixth and final season of the Netflix series, The Crown, episode by episode. We'll be taking you behind the scenes, speaking to many of the creatives involved and diving deep into the stories. Today, we'll be talking about episode three, titled Dis-moi oui. Diana holidays on the fire yacht once more, but with Dodie drained by a bitter lawsuit lodged by his former fiancé, Diana's thoughts turn towards reuniting with William and Harry as soon as possible. As the holiday enters its final days, Muhammad al-Fayed steps up the pressure on his son, not merely to pursue the romance, but to propose. A fateful diversion to Paris sees matters come to a head, against a backdrop of an intensified and aggressive media pursuit. We'll cover specific events and scenes that feature in this episode, so if you haven't managed to watch episode three yet, I suggest you do it now. Coming up on this episode of The Crown, the official podcast, I sit down with Khaled Abdallah to talk about the unique opportunity of playing Dodi Fired on The Crown. Shifting between the Arabic and the English and getting the Arabic right. Because mm. that's the thing. We are so used to it being done wrong, you know, and it hurts. And you're here and you're, you've got this opportunity. You've got to get it right. We also hear from the director, Christian Schwoho, on crafting the final movements of Diana and Dodi's story with care. More important was for me and the actors to get into that situation, how it must have felt to be chased 24 hours. But first, I spoke to one of The Crown's long-standing producers, Una O'Byrne. This is really nice because we're obviously the, the final season of The Crown, but I'm going to go back to my very first day of working on this podcast. Wow. And Una, you were in that. You were there when we went into Peter's for our first chat and you were on set when we got shown round in a very, what looked like a very important meeting as well, which we <laughs> kind of felt like, we shouldn't be here. What are we doing? How does it feel to be at the end, first of all? I, I, I think it hasn't quite hit in properly. You're still in it. I'm still in it. It's been like, I mean, it's been such a sort of extraordinary period, like nine years. I've never had a job that's lasted that long. My mum always wanted me to be permanent and pensionable, you know, and I think this is the closest I've ever been. It coincided as well with having a child. So it's been such a weird period. Wow. My son was born during season one. So the journey has been like, you know, all of his life and, 
yeah, all of the crown's life. He's a crown baby. He's a crown baby. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think the fact you've been part of the crown for nine years and, and as you say, this, this, this journey that you've been on with it is, is extraordinary. And it's the thing that we hear so often, which I think surprises people, is how collaborative it is. You know, how the cast can have input, how, you know, Peter works with the directors. He really encourages them to have their vision and to take that forward as well. How do you find that? Do you love that side of it, the collaborative nature of it all with the, the people that you work with in your with your role? That, yeah, that has been magical. And when you say sort of like, God, yeah, how, how, how do I feel about it coming to an end? I think that like that has been an incredible experience on the show and an amazing kind of learning experience too of like how to run a show properly, you know. And yeah, the collaboration... It, it was there right from the beginning. And I think that's why we've held on to so many kind of heads of department. You're all there in the meetings together. There's somebody representing every department in the meetings to talk about all aspects of the show. And I, I, I think it does come top down, doesn't it? This season, this final season, because it's our lived experiences, there's a different type of emotion to watching things, I think, as well. The first part of the season is incredibly emotional to watch. As a producer on the show, there's a responsibility there, isn't there, in terms of this is, it's delicate. It's yeah. knowing how to navigate around these events, these people, and tell the story in a respectful way, I guess. Is that something that really, that's been particularly with this season and the first half of the season, that's been incredibly important to you? on the script and research side of things about how you get to that story, how you get to what you cover, how you cover it, how you tell the story. Yeah, no, I mean, without a doubt, I think particularly episode three, I think, two and three and four, which Christian directed. I think those were the ones I was most nervous about, you know, out of all 60 episodes, because it's a very delicate subject matter, isn't it? You know, it's both one of the biggest, like the death of Diana and Dodie, one of the biggest moments in history, but also the end of somebody's life, you know, two, yeah. two people's, you know, three, three people's lives. And I think as we've gone through the kind of journey of The Crown, you know, there's been a lot more kind of scrutiny of the show and, you know, the whole kind of drama debate which we take on board very seriously. And so this event, this one event, particularly, yeah, what happened in Paris on that night in, in August 1997, it was something that there is endless information about. You know, there was the inquiry in France, the pageant inquiry in the UK. There are endless books written about it. There are endless kind of documentaries, interviews, eyewitnesses, you know, people who know Dodie, people who know Diana. And so a wealth of research. Mm. And I think we felt like this is a drama and we're telling the story and we want to be respectful of what we know to be the facts. But there was a sense of wanting to, you know, bring a sort of dignity to to what happened towards the end of their lives as well. Yeah, Like amazing if what we have dramatised is actually what happened in real life. You know, impossible to know. And so we had to sort of take a position. Yeah. But that position needed to be one that you felt was honest yeah. to who they were, or at least who we understood them to be through all of the research and interviews that we had done. It's not an easy episode to sum up. 
<laughs> it is not. No. No. I mean, because, you know, in ways it is the last kind of 48 hours of Diana and Dodie's life. Mm. It's not just a series of events that lead to a moment in the tunnel. It is, it's the 48 hours of their, uh, the last 48 hours of the life. But I think it's the exploration of that kind of relationship. Yeah. And when I think about where we go in that episode, I think, you know, when people talk about having kind of near death experiences, there's always like a life review, isn't there? You know, if, you, if you're brought back from a near death experience, very often people recall a kind of life review. Yeah. And that's the place we wanted to kind of get them in the episode that if, you know, you or I knew that we had only kind of 48 hours left to live and looked back on our lives, what would we want to do differently and what would we want to change and how would we want to be going forward? The episode became sort of more of an exploration of this couple this couple and yeah. where they were in their lives and what they were doing wrong and and how they could move forward beautifully in terms of that kind of creating that that noise and that pressure mayhem cooker. and pressure yeah pressure cooker around them you know right in that in that script stage of trying to create that stuff and that kind of boiling point of things as well where do you start with that <laughs> and how do you create that I mean, atmosphere in a script. Well, I was just sort of remembering, actually, I think, you know, the early drafts, right right up to shooting script, there were like something like, I don't know, 130 scenes in the episode. You know, they're only about 40 pages long. So 130 <laughs> scenes. So just this frenetic energy already, right? So yeah, in the script, it had, I think, 134 scenes to begin with. <laughs> um, and uh, production were like, guys... <laughs> Seriously, uh, <laughs> we still have That's the same like number the of days whole to film of it. Season you know? five in yeah. one script. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Can we please do something about that? I mean, we reduced it a bit, but not not massively. So that does lend to a sense of kind of yeah, like we're here, we're there, we're everywhere. Mm. You know. Also, you know, Christian. I mean, Christian did a load of work just in terms of you know he'd be like, okay, paparazzi, how many numbers in this scene, and how many more in the next scene, and how many more in the next scene, and mm. just getting them up around the car and banging on the window and in their faces, and yeah, I think a lot of credit goes to him and the team for how, how it was all kind of staged as well. I love as well how through everything, through all that, almost the kind of, what you call those things in submarines that come up to the crowd? The periscope. Periscope. Her almost up periscope at every moment if she's not with them as her kids. Mm. So they're always her kind of... They're always at the forefront. The homing beacon. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Of everything. Yeah. You know, it's always like, I need to speak to them or buy them a present or, you know, it's always there. It's her first train of thought, the way yeah. that it's been written. Yeah. And the way that that then you see it affect the character is weird because on one sense it gives her a calmness knowing that she's got that. Mm. But then if she's not with them, it kind of heightens the kind of the anxiety and the what is this? Why am I not there? Kind yeah. of thing as well. Yeah, yeah. double edged sword. Unhinged. Almost, yes, way, yeah. yeah. So clever. I think, like, I remember talking to somebody who worked with Diana in the last year of her life, and it's easy to forget that she died almost to the day, you know, just a year after her divorce. You know, her divorce was the twenty eighth of August, nineteen ninety six. That was the day it kind of finally went through. And she died on the 31st of August, 1997. So it was only a year later. And, and in 1997, you know, coming out of the royal family, coming out of that marriage, 
it was a time for her to kind of reinvent herself in ways. And she was so young, like that I forget so too. She, she just turned 36, so young. And, and she was trying to find out who she was outside of this family. But like the boys were, like you say, that sort of what kept her strong. You know, we know from like the little nuggets that would come up from research, like the fact that she went out and bought that um, PlayStation for Harry, but never got to give it to him. The phone call with the boys, which... That broke me, that did. It, every time I watch it, I still cry. You know, when you can, and you've watched it like 500 times in the edit, and yet every time... It makes me cry. And that's an example of like, OK, that's not as as far as we know exactly what the phone call was, because the boys talked about it in a documentary a few years ago and they said they regretted not talking to her for longer. You know, they didn't realise it was going to be the last time they mm-hmm. ever spoke to their mother, of course. But that felt like a moment where, you know, a- allow us to sort of expand on this a bit, because it's it's sort of... It was playing into that, what I say about kind of the life review, you know, in that scene with William, it's the first time we've seen kind of across season five, particularly in a little bit of six, where she had that relationship where she kind of rely on him a little bit too much. Mm. You know, she'd ask his advice on stuff that she really shouldn't, you know, talking to him about stuff that she really shouldn't have been talking about to him. And then that phone call, you know, she says, that's not for you to worry about. So again, it was about kind of the bringing her to a very dignified place before mm. the tragedy of her death that felt truthful, if not accurate, you know? Mummy, mm. are you going to marry Dodie? No. Why? Well, all the newspapers are saying you are. Well, you know better than to believe the papers. I'm emphatically not going to marry Dodie. To be honest, I can't wait to come home. You okay? I'm okay. It's just a bit mad here. Don't really understand how I ended up here. Will you let me listen? Mummy just needs to make some changes to her life, that's all. But that's not your problem, that's mine. Right. Now say hi to everyone for me. I'll see you both tomorrow night. While she's off kind of finding herself, the boys are at Balmoral having their summer there with the rest of the family. And William's kind of, he's a bit of a lost soul, which is is reliving her experience really as well, which is slightly symbolic, as well as the stag being symbolic, I think, in a way in itself. Yes. You know, one of our kind of earliest introductions to Emma Corrin as Diana was that stag sequence mm. in, in the Balmoral Test in episode two of season four. four. And, you know, symbolically, it is a rite of passage, isn't it, for uh, allegedly, I'm not a, a hunter. Same. <laughs> um, but allegedly it is a rite of passage from boyhood to manhood. Mm. And so many people talk about, you know, the loss of a parent being you know, if it happens when you're younger, being what takes you from kind of childhood to having to grow up very quickly. Yeah. And so for me, although Peter will never say what it's about, for me, that that was the kind of significance of the story for William, that this event, you know, inevitably changed things for him Mm. overnight, going from, you know, childhood to having to face unthinkable kind of realities. Oh yeah, guess what? What? I shot my first stag today. You didn't. I did. Well, don't tell me you got blooded too. I might have done. 
more. I can't bear it. Do you wash it off immediately? Most of it. Most of it. Mm-hmm. How's my Harry? He's good. He's waiting to talk to you. Hi, Mummy. Hi, darling. Later in this episode, director Christian Schwoho will tell us about closing the Diana and Dodie story. But first, I was honoured to have a conversation with the very talented Khaled Abdallah, who plays Dodie Fired on the show, on the set of season six. Can we go back to, to your journey into The Crown and how you came to play Dodie? What was that journey for you? How did you, was it an audition process? Were you, how was it? Do you want the truth? Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> always. The process was that I was asked to come in for a meeting uh, with Peter and we had a conversation. And, but to be honest, it really starts earlier for me, which is when I remember seeing the first poster of The Crown, because I was not someone who'd watched The Crown or seen mm -hmm. The Crown or really knew The Crown. I was living in Egypt at the time and there was a lot going on in my life. And I had my my first child in 2016 when The Crown came out. So it was just really not... You had priorities. And uh, <laughs> I, was, I was not someone who counted themselves as someone who wanted to watch The Crown. Mm -hmm. And then I remember as the years passed, my parents lived by a bus stop. The kind of The Crown would go past every once in a while. And uh, I remember thinking, oh, shit, they're going to get to Dodie, aren't they? <laughs> I remember having the thought, like, does that mean that they'll, they'll probably ask me to come in? I don't want to play Dodie. You know, there's only, so, there's only so many of us, and I just didn't imagine myself. And anyway, I wouldn't be right for it. I'd be completely the wrong person. And then, yeah, the day came to pass where I got that phone call. Wow. And then I was like, really? You're joking. Why? <laughs> and then I had the conversation with Peter and understood what he was thinking. Because in general, you'd assume, sadly, that that Dodie or people of my casting tend to be like the small role on the side that passes on screen as someone not that important. So was that going to be the treatment or was it going to be something that really honoured them yeah. as figures and as people and in what way and it became clear what that was going to be and at which point that was an immense and beautiful cultural like challenge yeah um and then you're like oh shit is <laughs> she gonna do this <laughs> and then it's all the responsibilities that come with that in terms of first really thinking really doing the research to understand what you what you think who you think he was mm -hmm what you think about his relationship with his father and how that orients his life and yeah. who he is and what you think about his relationship with Diana, what you think about his relationship with Kelly, what you think about his relationship with the women in his life, of which there were many, and where that all comes from. And, you know, how to create a complex portrayal that hopefully is compelling and touches people. And then sort of like jumping between seasons, Dodie is someone who was never mourned. You can't mourn someone you don't know. And part of what we did and have done over these two seasons is tell a story of a full, complex character who you get to know yeah. and hopefully get to love and also have all sorts of issues with. And then when he dies, you can feel something. And that, for me, is the great honour in playing this role. Because, yeah. you know, there are people who still ask me if he's alive. Right? Wow. 
which tells you. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which tells you where we were. And part of who he is is through that relationship with his father. So did part of your prep involve working with and talking with Salim on that relationship and what that was? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there was lots of different there are lots of different strands to the preparation. I mean, one of the first strands was obviously, what does he sound like? Mm -hmm. Just like, <laughs> yeah. which is another one of the stories. It's like, and you think about it, you're like, wow, I have seen this guy's image for the last 25 years, and I don't even know what he sounds like. Mm -hmm. And then there was this whole journey with um, with the research team and Annie and Victoria uh, in particular. It was like, I was like, it was like before the first read through, I was like, I'm, you know, I was auditioned without having to do, without having to speak, right? And I've had, I haven't seen any script. The scripts hadn't been written, and I'm about to go in and read it, and I get the script like a week before, and it's like, okay, well, what does he sound like? <laughs> what accent do I do? Someone tell me, because he could be, he could have a, an Egyptian accent, he could have an accent a bit like mine, and he could dialect. have, a, he could have all of those. You know, what is it? And there was only one interview that they had at the time, which is the weirdest interview, uh, where he calls in to Larry King with Burt Reynolds being interviewed to ask Burt Reynolds to do an impression of Tony Curtis doing Cary Grant. And it's the weirdest thing. <laughs> and uh, But from it, you hear his actual accent, which is this kind of American accent, but with little vowels and things mm -hmm. here, which are... Uh, which are Egyptian-ish. So that was like, you know, just finding his voice. Yeah. That's a big thing because it tells you where he grew up, where what he associates himself mm -hmm. with, how he, you know... Presents how himself. How he presents himself, mm -hmm. right? Does he sound abrasive? Does he sound gentle? Does You know, all of these kinds of things. He's agreed. We can use the jet. But if you don't mind, we'll stop in Paris first. What? Why? There's something I have to do. You were asking about Salim and the relationship. Well, so language, like huge. That journey for us to find the right language, shifting between the Arabic and the English and getting the Arabic right. Because mm. that's the thing. We are so used to it being done wrong, you know? And it hurts. And you're here and you're, you've got this opportunity. You've got to get it right. And so there was this whole process over that first summer of building the team from dialect, but also from the translation of the script and this incredible writer, Bilal Fadler, who did the dialogue. And then we created this team between us, this sort of triangular, quadrangular team with me and Salim and Norhan and Bilal getting it right. So it was like really gives that sort of spark of energy. And then discovering the dynamic between us, you know, I mean, me and Salim, it's, we've become part of each other's families. You know, I mean, we just completely, you know, there are people you meet in your life who you feel like you've known for the last 40 years, you know? Yeah. And Salim is, is one of those for me. I think one of the things as well that both me and Salim kind of recognize you know, there is a, there's a huge opportunity for our culture, not just those individuals, Muhammad al-Fayed and, and Dodi, you know, but there's a, for, for a representation that we feel is in some part, you know, is ours being there on screen. And that's, 
And that makes us also just desperately want to live up to the challenge. And so uh, the support between each other and the love and the finding the scenes and, you know, it's just, it's beautiful. And it's beautiful, the amount of Arabic that's on screen. I think that that's brilliant. And it's the way it should be. I think that that's a really important part of the storyline of these characters as well, in terms of how and when we switch between Arabic and English, almost in a way, even within a sentence. Absolutely. And it's part of the storytelling. Yeah. You know, when you speak this language and when you speak that language and how you how you split between them and, you know, and who you are, like they're almost different people in the diff- in, in, in those different languages. Yeah. And, you know, and we fought so hard in that, you know, in the, in the translation, because very often as well, you, you, you feel like, oh, it's been translated from the original dialogue. And what that does is for you as an actor is it just takes the energy out. You know, yeah. it's like, it doesn't feel right. That's not how we say it. And the benchmark was to was to make it such that Peter's original script would be the best possible translation <laughs> of, of how we would say, say it. it. Yeah. And that just created these sparks, you know? Mm-hmm. من كوكشن ديمواوي اخيرا ابن حبيبي عملها وجاب جون خاتم خطوبه مش متاكد وطبعا خاتم خطوبه ديمواوي معناها سيستو مي مش كده ايوه كده طلعت نمسي يا ولا فايد ابن فايد قول لي هي لابسه دلوقتي مش كده عايزك تبعت لي صوره لسه ما استلمتوش كلمت المحل بعد ما مشينا قالوا لي they didn't have it in stock بس موجود عندهم في فرع باريس طب خدها واطلع لباريس on screen this complex relationship between these two individuals between Dodi and Mohammed in season six how would you can you describe that relationship well in both I mean season five kind of sets up season six and that's why it was so important to get it right yeah. from the beginning and you've got this complex thing where you have, it's always complicated to find the right words, but there's an element of dysfunction in the relationship, right? But there is a bedrock of deep love. And that's something that, you know, a lot of people can associate, you know, with in their, in their life. Their, mm. You know, relationships with parents are not always easy. You're lucky if you have an easy relationship with your parent. And to get that balance right, where you, at the one side, see both their perspectives and you don't want to hate one Mm. for what they're doing to the other. And you don't want to make this horrible comparison either between them, because that's one of the terrible things about Dodi's previous reputation, which I just can't stand. You know, this idea that because he's not his father, which exists in life, not just from Hamad al-Fayed himself, it's like, you know, they sort of talk about him as this waste of space person Mm. when you're like i mean hang on you know is the benchmark that you've established harrods and bought the ritz and you know what does that make of 99 percent of the world who hasn't done that are they failures are they people who are wasting their way through their life should that be the gaze that we apply to dodi just because that's his father Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous you know but so to get that dynamic between them so that you understand, but you really know that they love each other and you just wish that it could be better somehow, which is what makes you 
love them, yeah. you know, is what makes you there for them. And in turn, what then sets up how you interpret the dynamic of what goes on between Dodie and Diana. And between Dodie in relation to himself in relation to Diana mm. and each part of that triangle. So season five was essential in setting that up right so that it could then unfurl over season six. How would you describe Dodie? Is that easy to do? Through all this incredible work you've done both, you know, the research, the the deep dive you've done, but this portrayal of this character as well. I mean, he was just a lovely person, I think, you know? Mm. I, mean, I can tell the anecdote through uh, through a costume anecdote, actually, mm. which was, again, one of the first places where it was like, ah, oh, there he is. Mm. We realised in the room with Amy that there was fabrics that you wanted to touch. You kind of wanted to hold him and hug him. Yeah. Anything that had, like, sharp edges or that was, like, very... Like Stoic. that. Anything that kind of went with that word playboy, actually, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. Was wrong. Yeah. It was stuff that, you know, there's some there's some balance between wanting to care for him. Yeah. And also him being someone deeply caring to everyone around him. Yeah. There are these stories about him, you know, who's obviously in this complicated relationship with his father about, you know, there'd be times when he would stop the car with a friend in there and goes to the restaurant where his father had been rude to someone and go in and say, I'm so sorry, he didn't mean it. And, you know, all of these kinds of things or, you know, and constantly looking after all of his friends and people. But, you know, it's obviously coming from somewhere yeah. complex. You know, his, uh, I think his, his, his parents divorced when he was three and he wasn't allowed to see his mother for most of his life. And, you know, what that does to your yeah. desire to be loved yeah. And also your desire to show love. Yeah. You know, I think that's like part of the core of who he was. And also, you know, seeing his father constantly misinterpreted that this larger than life character and being this person who's sort of in between. Something that was said to me that really resonated was he didn't want to compete with his father. It's so funny you saying about um, wanting to touch because with Elizabeth, that was something that I really got from watching your performances particularly the two of you together was just how tactile they were so it's the holding hands or just the the stroking of skin yeah, or yeah. and it was something that they both just longed for yeah, I mean, and absolutely. they found in each other absolutely just the closeness that they well the physical... I mean and you know where that comes from that doesn't just come from I mean you know what so one of the things that I did for season six which weirdly for me I don't think has been done before and I was like why <laughs> is I asked for and gathered as many of the photos of Dodie and Diana as I could as possible, but then set them just in chronological order. Oh, wow. And I'm like, why doesn't a book of this exist? You, you <laughs> see them like with all the images that you've seen, but no, what happens is just the iconic images yeah, yeah, exist. Yeah, the headlines. Right? You, you don't put them in sequence. You can't quite imagine mm -hmm. the sequence. I mean, when, you know, when people hear that their relationship from beginning to end was six weeks, they're like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. you know like because we've been watching them for the last 25 years yeah. so it feels like it's so much longer you put it in sequence and first of all you see because that was a crucial question for me was there a falling in love and it's just so obvious when you look at the sequence number one and then it's particular you know there are, there are certain images that that take over 
But one of the ones that don't doesn't take over is the image of you know him just putting his hand on her face. There are very tactile, gentle gestures. Mm. You know, there's all these kind of stroking moments that are so gentle and tender, and you're not like that with anyone unless there is a, a falling in love. Yeah. And whether they would have lasted forever or another week or whatever, that's that's another question completely. Yeah. Right. But there was that. Yeah. At least that's how it seems to me. Do you talk to Elizabeth about that, or do you just do it? Then when you're when you're shooting and you're the first, it was actually in the first conversation that we had. Yeah, because I didn't really have much contact with uh, with Elizabeth during season five. Yeah, and so it was as we were coming to prepare to see it for season six. I was so relieved that we felt the same way. We talked a lot about and felt our way a lot. That's the other thing through their relationship. I mean, in some senses, what we did was an act of research <laughs> yeah and i have this experience from other things that i've done you know united 93 you could sort of make a comparison in a different way but you know you go into the similar kind of place and you reenact similar scenes similar moments and they also give you feedback they tell you things and i tell you you spend three weeks on a yacht in the middle of <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of <laughs> something happens between you know something happens you know and the you know and, and that giddiness arrives and yeah. and but yeah no it, it's funny because you like it's worth mentioning just because the other thing that's happened to me through this is like this weird reverse back to the future thing <laughs> yeah so you know in back to the future you've got you know the, those photographs where he goes back in time and then things start kind of disappear. you know start to disappear <laughs> yeah. or change or whatever i've had this weird experience <laughs> where like at the beginning of this all those iconic images of dodie and diana and stuff they were just you know images that mm -hmm. i'd seen now i start to have lived them <laughs> they've started to become part of my life and I start to go oh, yeah I know that jacket oh yeah I know that place oh yeah no and it's like it's a really weird thing where the family album has actually become part of my life wow how much did you enjoy working with Elizabeth oh uh, delight delight I mean you know we had such a special time doing that together and of course our journey isn't over but I don't think you know I, I couldn't have done it without her mm. and you know, that, that space that we found of tenderness towards each other, but towards Dodie and Diana, mm. and exploring that space together was magical. I'm a shy, private person, and I've hated seeing my life play out in the newspapers. Not to mention the insults and the prejudice dump the oily lover at? Why can't I find a nice English boy? I'm sorry. You know, it's been getting worse for me too. They make like they're your friend and they just write insult after insult anyway. The intensity of those particular scenes of this couple who, like you say, ha have fallen in love are in this relationship and the the scrutiny that's on them and this kind of journeys that they have to take sort of they you know they get in the car they go somewhere they get out of the car they are hounded what's the, the conversations that you have with Christian in particular for 
filming those scenes and, and finding that because watching it is you you kind of feel that sort of tension and that stress around those areas of what it must have been can't imagine what it would have been like for them but for you filming you, I mean the, I mean the first thing that comes to mind is the first time I had the experience doing this mm. right of what it's like to be in the car and have those you know bangs on the window from press on scooters right yeah. and I had, didn't have the experience of how long it happened for them in real life, but I had the experience of it happening to me repeatedly, right? And I remember just simply that day when we sort of got out of costume and went home, how just simply being on the road, every time a scooter would go past, I would almost flinch, mm. right? It starts to ghost you. Yeah. The first time I, in costume, walked next to Elizabeth in costume, going through public space to where we were going to film and the energy of the gaze on you is so powerful now you imagine that for the duration of those six weeks like scale it up yeah and then you also imagine you know because this this is how i feel about it but, you know, again, it was six weeks, right? The thing was for me to try and get it into a circumstance where you viscerally understood why they would try and escape them. Mm. It's one thing to kind of go in retrospect, oh, they should have done this or they should have done that. But you need to viscerally experience what it's like to be hounded. Suddenly then you understand why they're in this situation where these decisions that, you know, mm. that end up being bad decisions, you know, result in their tragic death. But it was absolutely essential to have that. And again, to get that balance point yeah, between you kind of going, I kind of feel like if I were in their position, I would do that. And yet, what have I just said? If they do that, then this might happen to them, right? Mm. And I kind of see it as our job not to answer questions. I see it as our job to ask the questions as intensely as possible. The way that Peter has kind of, you know, this show is based on real people and events and he has creative license to write those conversations that go on behind closed doors. Yeah. But the way that he's written this story in particular, there are so many fascinating and interesting moments and one of those is the proposal. And the proposal idea kind of comes, starts off with Dodi, is encouraged by his father and he makes the decision to to go forward with that proposal mm. and it's it's not uh, received in the way that he would hope but from that it almost strengthens the relationship in a way. That was the biggest challenge of episode three because the likelihood is that that proposal didn't happen that night, mm -hmm. right? But quite possibly it was going to at some point. Mm -hmm. And part of what I think Peter has done, and I think it's a bold, beautiful move, is kind of take that what if into that moment to allow us to explore what we've been wondering about for 25 years in terms of the energies between them, right? And also because we have all these competing stories. Did it, didn't it? Okay, well, what happens if we try and make both those things true and see what the energy is? Because in a way, that's also how we live, right? There's always energies in the air 
some of which we explore in real life and some of which we defer till later and you know all that kind of thing so let's mm, let's put it in there and make it have happened in that room look i know you're upset now i, I know you always want to make everyone happy and that's adorable But there's only one person in the world this marriage would make happy. Who? I can't make your father love you more by becoming your wife. Well, actually, I think you can. Well, I'm not going to do it. Marriage is a serious and painful business. What we have is all about joy and healing and lightness. The struggle to get that scene right so that everyone receives what they need from each other mm. and also in relation to the wider story of Hamad al-Fayed and mm. William and Harry and all of those kinds of things so you were feeling all of that it was I mean it was magical it was so hard so hard I mean it was essentially the last scene that we shot together oh wow which was a gift of planning really so that we could have the journey of having explored everything and really have this deep sense of what we wanted to offer that scene and what we wanted to give it, you yeah. know? Having gone through these incredible months of filming and exploring, you know, I mean, like walking into that, you know, that's probably the first and last time that the back entrance of the Ritz will be recreated so perfectly. Mm. And to walk into that space and find it's your body. Wow. <laughs> and her, you know, and we are in exactly the same position. Oh, and there's the CCTV camera. Wow. From which God, all those is. shots that we've all seen is, right? And exactly, it's just giving you chills. And then it's like to live up to that and to explore it. And also, but also to not think about that. Because you, you know, that must be so hard to almost. Well, to not, to not, to not think about it, to feel it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. To feel it, because you, you, you're, you know, I think in in some of the best acting circumstances, you are deeply feeling, mm. you know, and you're bringing that in a sort of situation of flow into reactions and emotions and relations, and words and no, no, I mean it was just like. <sighs> You know, the ghosts of that space were strong, mm. which is what makes you want to, to live up to it, to, to explore this moment and these people. Like, amazing. Before we go, let's hear from Christian Schwohl, who directed episodes two, three and four of season six. On the last episode of The Crown, the official podcast, Christian told us about how emotional it was to deal with the end of Diana's life in these episodes. I wanted to ask him about working with Khaled and Elizabeth in episode three. Research was always a big thing. But more important was for me and the actors to get into that situation, how it must have felt to be chased. 24 hours mm. and in a strange way we got a sense when when we did this block we were followed by paparazzi 
all the time. They always knew where we were shooting. We don't know how they found out. Mm. My first shooting day for this was in the mountains in a tiny village outside Barcelona. They found us. The British tabloid had like 75 photos of us filming and a video the next day. They were able to make photographs of us filming on the open ocean. I don't know how they did it. Oh, my God. So it was kind of as if it was all repeating itself. Yeah. But yeah, this kind of claustrophobic general feeling they must have felt throughout these days. Because, I mean, of course, Diana was always in the center of attention. But nothing ever mm. had happened to her like this before. Chased by scooters in the midst of Paris. You know, it's it was crazy. And I hope we... We, we kind of managed to capture that feeling. That final scene when they're in the corridor and deciding what's going to be the final scene, you know, in terms of being respectful and what you weren't going to show. How do you decide what you're going to show and what you're trying to say in that last scene? Well, there's only one shot that resembles the CCTV footage. There's other shots of them where we decide we want to show an intimacy between them. So even though Dodie had just proposed, Diana said, oh my God, no way of getting married with you. There's this very tender atmosphere and there's a lightness because they, I asked Trevor and them to find a moment where they can laugh because it's all so absurd. Yeah. They're so rich and now they're waiting in this shabby corridor <laughs> yeah. playing tricks on the paparazzi and then they must, you know, they didn't they never really slept within the last 72 hours so they you're you're tired, you cried, you you know, it's 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 all madness and they realize we're living in a madness. But at least you know, we understand each other and we will probably stay friends forever. And that continues when they realize they are being chased again. That's why the actors, it was not in the script, it was not my idea. The actors on the day came up to speak to me and said, shall we hold hands in the car? And I, I thought, is, is this a bit too cheap? And then I realized, no, this is great. And now we have this long shot on them holding hands, but not as lovers but as people who really found a friend. I'm Edith Bowman. I'd like to give special thanks to our guests on this episode, Christian Schwoho, Una O'Bairn and Khaled Abdallah. The Crown, the official podcast, is produced by Netflix and Sony Music Entertainment in association with Left Bank Pictures. Join me next time when I go behind the scenes of the fourth episode of this season, titled Aftermath. The world reacts to the news of the deaths of Dodie and Diana. In Paris, Mohammed Al-Fayed is consumed by grief. At Balmoral, the royal family grapples with a deeply personal tragedy with very public implications. I've just been out there. I've seen it for myself. People taking to the streets. 
not just here, all over the world, in their hundreds, thousands. And they will expect us to show grief and compassion and for you to be mother to the nation. If you don't mind, I'm concerned with being a grandmother to William and Harry. That's my priority. And I'd rather not be lectured on how or when to grieve or show emotion. Subscribe now, wherever you get your podcasts.